Hey, we're starting a new series that we're calling The New Life. I'm very excited about this series because it's going to go for a long time through the summer. We're going to be hitting all the different things that happen in your life with Christ. You know, I think people in today's world don't necessarily even know what it means to follow Jesus and what sort of things might be part of that. And that's what I want to talk about in this series. What is the new life we have in Christ? What are the things that we can grab hold of. I think this will be helpful for the believer, and I think it'll be especially helpful for the seeker. So Jesus changed the world with two words, follow me. You know, it changed everything. Obviously, he had to give them something to follow in order for those words to matter. But Jesus said, follow me. He called people out of the life that they had into a new life, into something different. And those two words are still changing the world. Follow me. When people turn their lives to Christ and they start living for God, then that changes who they are. It changes the way they approach this life. And let me tell you, if you let those words, they will change your life as well. If you are willing to follow Jesus, if you are willing to go forward trusting in him and putting your life and your afterlife in the hands of Jesus, then you have a dramatically changed life. So one of the great promises in the Bible is new life, is that the Bible tells us that our lives can be dramatically changed for the better if we trust in Jesus. Let me just read a couple examples from the scriptures. We're going to go to the Gospel of John chapter 3, the very famous section where, you know, John records Jesus and Nicodemus, their interaction. Nicodemus, you'll hear about, was a, a very scholarly, fancy religious person, you know, kind of up on the top there. And he came to Jesus to, like, hear more. He was intrigued by who Jesus was, what he had to say, and he's trying to figure out what's going on with this guy. So here we go, the Gospel of John, chapter 3. We're going to work through verses 1 through 8. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. The speculation is that going to Jesus during the day would have maybe created some problems for Nicodemus. He was very interested in what Jesus had to say, but he didn't necessarily want to deal with the backlash of a public meeting with Jesus. So he came to Jesus at night. That might be a little bit of reading into it, but that's what I've heard people say. So Nicodemus gives a very respectful greeting to Jesus. This Pharisee, a member of the Jewish ruling council, he says, you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. That's a very respectful greeting from a Pharisee to Jesus. Jesus replies to the greeting with verse 3. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. So this is a very interesting statement from Jesus. It seems very unsolicited. Uh, you know, Nicodemus is like, hey man, you're awesome. Really appreciate what you're doing. God is clearly with you. And then Jesus' response is, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. 
Then Nicodemus' response, verse 4, how can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. So I don't know. Some people think Nicodemus is being sarcastic here. I don't think he is. I don't understand what he's saying exactly. I mean, that wouldn't have been the direction I would have gone with that. I would have been like, I don't understand what you mean. What are you talking about? But Nicodemus is saying like, you get born once and that's it. Like there is no second birth, born again. There is no being born from above. What are you talking about? You're just born and then here you are. So Nicodemus seems to be a pretty practical guy. It's like, no, you, you're just born. How does this work? What are you talking about? So Jesus continues, verse five. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. So Jesus is telling Nicodemus, there's something you can't see. There's something more important than what you can see that you can't see. And this is the thing that will allow you to enter into the kingdom of God. It says, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. So just being born of the flesh, just having the normal life, Jesus is saying is not enough. There's something else you've got to grab hold of. You've got to be born of the spirit, born from above. Flesh gives birth to flesh. The spirit gives birth to spirit. You must be born again. So this being born of the spirit, born again, is something very, very new. It's a promise that we can have a new life, that we can grab hold of something we didn't otherwise understand. We can be born of the spirit and understand spiritual things, not just be born of the flesh and understand worldly things. We can grab hold of more. And Jesus says, in fact, you're not even gonna see the kingdom of God unless you're born again, because if you can't have that spiritual connection with the things of God, how are you going to see the kingdom of God? How are you going to participate? You know, if all you're doing is thinking and doing, but you're not connecting spiritually with the things of God, how's that going to work? So Jesus is saying, you got to be born again. You have to have something significant change here. Significant to the extent of Jesus using phraseology like born again, you know, born from above. Like you have to start a whole new life. And that is a powerful, powerful thing. So Jesus tells Nicodemus, you got to be born again. So this is talking about that dramatic life change, going from that place where you don't see the spiritual things, you just are unaware of them, to the place where you do see the spiritual things, where you're aware of the power and the goodness of God. Now, what I think is extra interesting here is that Nicodemus is a high-level religious person. He's a Pharisee. He's a member of the Jewish ruling council. He's an important guy. And Jesus is saying to him, you really have no spiritual connection with God. So running around and doing religious things does not necessarily give us a spiritual connection with God. In fact, Jesus says, you got to be born again. You have to grab hold of a spiritual connection with God that will change you to the extent that being born again is an accurate way of describing it. So there's something new. There's a new life. The old was this way. Now there's something new. And along those lines, let's go to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, I think, is a fantastic 
fantastic section of scripture dealing with this very same topic of, you know, the old life and the new life, born again, the new life, something different. If we are following Jesus, we're not doing things the same as we did before. Now we're doing things different. Now we're born again. Now we're living a new life. So let's go ahead and go to Romans chapter 6. We'll work through verses 1 through 11. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Here Paul was dealing with some uh, religious dysfunction. People were coming up with interesting ideas like, well, if God's forgiveness is for everyone and that grace is so beautiful, then why not get forgiven of more stuff and have that beautiful thing keep happening? <laughs> so he's like, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So we have new life right there, verse 4. So we are buried with Christ, crucified with Christ. The old is gone, but something new comes. There is a new life, no longer living for sin, no longer living uh, for you know selfish reasons, but now living for the things of God, living for something more important than our own comforts, our own desires, the things that we like, you know, now, the good news about this new life that we'll talk about through this series is that when we make the sacrifice to follow Christ, he gives us a better life. You know, that was part of, you know, what I was talking about here is that our lives can be drastically changed for the better. Now, it's not necessarily for the easier or for the simpler, but for the better. You know, sometimes something can be difficult, but it's worth fighting for. And that's what this life in Christ is like. It might be difficult, but it's worth fighting for. Our lives can be dramatically changed for the better when we trust in Jesus. So again, verse four, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the father, we too may live a new life. Verse five, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. So this is one of the great promises here in verse five. It's not just about turning over a new leaf and actually being part of the solution instead of part of the problem. It's not just about this life, but there's also resurrection life. There's everlasting life. We get eternal life, which is like a big deal. I don't understand how people can be sort of like bored with that. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We all go to heaven, whatever. You're like, oh, first of all, we don't all go to heaven. Second of all, like, this is a big deal. I understand that this is an incredible promise. And that even if this life was all suffering and pain so that we could have eternal life in the paradise of God, that would be worth it. Let's put in a hundred rough years and then you get eternity in the perfect plan of God. Like that's well worth it. But the better news is that the following God in this life is not about misery and pain. It's about life to the full. It's about abundant life. It's about grabbing hold of good things. Now, there are martyrs and there's persecution and stuff like that. But let me tell you, in the United States, you're not going to get much more than maybe somebody doesn't like you. You know what I mean? Like they might say something mean to you. That's not persecution. That's just somebody doesn't like you. So let's not 
think that this life is so hard as Americans to follow Jesus. You know, all the culture's going away from Christ. Like, well, these guys, the culture was never there. Anyway, I'm just trying to say that we have wonderful new life in Christ and everlasting life in the paradise of God as the promise of the scripture. This new life is for this life and for the age to come. And that is an amazing, amazing promise. Let's keep reading. Verse six, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So, we are dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So this is the new life. This is what we grab hold of. We're dead to sin, alive to God. Now we are followers of Jesus, ready to live a new life. So new life is an amazing promise, but people can respond to this promise in different ways. I remember, you know, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I wasn't taught the things of God. I wasn't taught to believe these sorts of things. I was taught, you know, basic, normal, scientific worldview, you know, like that sort of a thing, you know? So like I considered religious structures to be mythologies that, you know, helped people in ancient times understand the world, but they weren't actually real. You know, like there wasn't actually a creator God out there somewhere. I mean, I just didn't believe that. And one time when I was in college, I was on the streets of Chicago with a friend of mine from college, and we were just hanging out, you know, going to the aquarium and seeing different museums and whatever. And a guy came up to me and wanted to talk to me. And uh, his name was Orville. And Orville shared Jesus with me and, uh, and my friend. I thought, Oh, there's this guy talking to me about his religious persuasion. Like, that's interesting. You know, like, first of all, I, I thought it was, it was, I don't know if cute is the right word, but uh, it was just something to, to behold. You know, I hadn't really experienced that sort of thing before. So it was like, hey, you know, who are you? What are you doing? Like, I just thought it was interesting, amusing, and I thought it was kind of fun. And Orville seemed like a good guy, and he had somebody there watching him. So I think he was from like Moody, you know, and he's out doing a witnessing class or something because there was a, a looked like a professor watching him, you know, do his witnessing to the people like me. He talked about Jesus, and then my friend was like, "Hey, man, we got to get going." So I said, "Hey, Orville, I got to get going." He's like, "Do you want to follow Jesus?" And I'm like, "Not right now." <laughs> I just left and uh, did not respond to Orville's witness to the Lordship of Christ, that Jesus was our Lord and Savior. I did not respond to that. I just let it go. You know, obviously, in the interim period between then and now, something has changed. Uh, we'll probably talk about that in the series somewhere as well. But oftentimes, people's response to this promise is shaped by their understanding of the promise, this promise of new life, this promise that we have something that God has offered us that we can grab hold of, that there's this past thing, then there's our time where we are made new, where we're born again, where we grab hold of new life, and then there's this thing afterwards. Like, what is the promise of that thing? 
and people's understanding of what that looks like before they make the choice is going to affect whether or not they make the choice and what their experience might be like after they make the choice to follow Jesus. So I want to look at the parable of the sower now, and we'll look at how there were four different responses to the word of God, to the seed being sown. So here we go, Matthew chapter 13, one of my very favorite parables, Matthew 13. We'll read the parable, and then we will read the interpretation. One of the glorious things about this parable is Jesus interprets it at length as recorded here in Matthew chapter 13. So here's the parable, four categories. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it, while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things and parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow, but when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. There's the parable. Jesus says a farmer sows a seed. Back then, they'd like have a bag of seed, and they just chuck it up in the air and uh, have it land in the field. Some of it, though, would fall on the path. Birds come eat it up. Some would fall in very shallow soil with rocks underneath. It would come up quick, but then it would dry out and die. Others, you know, there's all kinds of other plants, and that chokes them out. And some of the seed falls in a good spot where it can grow on its own, has lots of water, doesn't have competition from other plants, produces a crop 160 or 30 times what was sown. You know, people are like, I don't know what you're talking about. And so Jesus explains it to his disciples. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means, verse 18. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. So the first response to the, the seed being sown, like for example, Orville talking to me on the streets of Chicago, the first response is to just ignore it. Now, if somebody doesn't think the promise is real or they think it's a bad promise, they're going to be like, no, no, thank you. It's a bad promise or it's not even real. For me, I mean, like going to heaven, that sounds nice, but I didn't think there was such a thing. So like, it doesn't matter if you promise me something that's not real. I'm not going to take it. You know, like I'm not going to buy the bridge. I'm not going to do that stuff. If it's not real, I'm not going for it because it has to actually be real for it to matter. And so, you know, what Orville was saying, he was very pleasant. He seemed to be saying something somewhat coherent. But, you know, it seemed nice. I just didn't think it was real. I didn't think it was actually a promise that was there for me to take. I thought it was just a thing he was saying based on a mythology that wasn't real. And so if you think that there is no God, that Bible is not true, why would you accept the promise? It, it, it doesn't make any sense. You're just going to reject it. And some people think the promise is a bad promise. You know, like they make the jokes about, you know, like, well, I'd rather be in hell with my friends than in heaven with you losers, you know. And no, you would not rather be there. So don't make that joke. It's, it might be funny, but it's not real. It's not true. But of course, if you perceive the promise as a bad promise, or as a promise that isn't even a real promise, then you're going to reject it. That's the hard path. 
And it indicates here too that you know the devil can be involved in that. The enemy, the evil one, snatches up what was sown. Like, eesh, that's scary. Now, verse 20, the second one. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. So this section, the rocky soil, the shallow soil, these are the people who, when they hear the promise, they don't expect there to be any hardships, any difficulties, any challenges with it. They just hear the good parts of the promise. So they think, oh, there's a God in heaven that loves me and forgives me of my sins and gives me everlasting life. Sweet, that sounds good. I'll do that. You know, I want to go to heaven. The reality is, is there are people that go into a relationship with God with an expectation that it's always going to be comfortable, that it's always going to be affirming, that it's always going to be positive. And then they get kicked in the teeth by the enemy. And all of a sudden, you know, their expectation is destroyed. They realize there's pain and suffering involved and, and they're thrown off. And here Jesus says that they fall away. They quickly fall away. And that's not where we want to be. This I would describe as platitude Christianity. You know, this is kind of like meme quality Christianity. You know, you'd see on Facebook, uh, you know, some sort of vague positive thing, you know, that's got a cross and a cloud and a sun shining through it, you know. And it says something like everything happens for a reason or, you know, God won't give you more than you can handle. And then all of a sudden you're faced with the deep evils of this world and the cruelty that can come your way and the suffering that's there. And you think God's going to take care of it. It's not how it works out. And all of a sudden you're thinking, you know, like, well, if God is behind this, you know, this is no good. You know, this is pain and suffering and evil and darkness. And, uh, you know, the reality is everything happens for a reason. And so, you know, in that cause and effect sense, but sometimes the reason is the devil's mean and cruel. You know, sometimes the, the reason is, is that, sin is allowed to happen here on this earth. And so people are dramatically hurt. You know, I don't think God will give you more than you can handle, but guess what? The devil will. This cruel, sinful world will give you more than you can handle. And then you realize that the simplistic, you know, platitude understanding that you had going into accepting the promise of new life is just not the way it is. And those people will fall away because they just don't have the grit that it takes to fight through the hardships because they went into it thinking everything was going to be easy. So that's the rocky soil, the shallow soil. Then let's go to the third one, verse 22. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. So this is basically the people who they believe they, they seem to have a fairly deep understanding of how this works, the hardships and the difficulties, as well as the blessings and the good things. But they don't understand the priority that it needs to take. I would describe this in today's world as the consumer Christian. You know, this is the person who has, you know, Jesus as eighth priority in their life, you know, like uh, right after a good solid nap, you know, number eight of the good things of life. Jeez, my relationship with Jesus, eighth, 
you know, that's not how it's supposed to work because then you're just never going to get around to fighting the good fight, making it happen, you know, making a difference. You're not going to make a difference. You're just going to always be busy with other things and never grab hold of the fullness of Christ. So making Jesus eighth on your priority list is not sufficient. You know, it's God first. You know, so the the mistakes that we see in these first three categories, one is not realizing that it's even real or, you know, which is reasonable enough. I mean, I was under that impression for a long time, you know, not thinking that it's even real or thinking that the promise is a bad promise. Then, you know, there's just that everything's going to be great, you know, and then realizing, guess what? There's suffering and pain still. That can be tough. And then this idea of, yeah, yeah, I'll just put Jesus in the back of my closet and I'll go to heaven and whatever. It's all good. You know, but you never actually get around to doing anything for the kingdom of God. The priority is wrong. Instead, we want to be any of those three, right? And I've definitely been the first one. And I got to tell you, I've been the third one too. I've been the priority one. Now I've had in general, fairly solid dedication to Christ. But you know, there's times when your spiritual walk is just not that strong, where you're sort of distracted by the things of the world. You might be going through a little downtime, a little rough patch, and uh, you're just not that interested in the things of God. And you know, so I've definitely been that among thorns place in my life as well. I don't know how bad I've been the shallow soil, you know. I mean, I think I've been willing to walk into the pain without running away from God. But I've definitely been the first one and the third one. Now let's look at the fourth one. This is the goal. This is what we want. Verse 23, but the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. So we want to be the one who hears the word and understands it, who really grasps what is going on here, you know, that it's real, that it's good, that it's going to involve some battles and struggles and pain, and that it is worth putting as our first priority. And so then that person who understands all of those things about the good promise of God for this new life is able to then be productive, produce a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. Interesting, he goes right back into the crop. You know, what does that exactly mean? Well, that can mean a lot of different things for different people, but it's whatever God is calling you to do to advance the kingdom of God, you know, whatever it might be. There's a huge number of different types of things like that. So we want to be the good soil. And in this series, you know, I want to talk about what it means to be the good soil and to live this new life, to live this born again life, to no longer walk in sin, but now walk in newness of life, walking in the ways of God. What does that look like? What is that? Is it just a thought you think? Well, you know, I believe in Jesus. I think he died on the cross for my sins and great, you know, and then you just go about your business with no other changes or is there something more to it? There's more to it than that. You know, we need to produce fruit 160 or 30 times what was sown. So in this series, I want to talk about a lot of the common experiences that we have in this new life of walking with Christ. What does that look like? What are some different milestones along the way? What are we What are we trying to accomplish? What do we need to deal with? So that's what we're talking about in this series. I think this should be helpful to improve the understanding of those who are committed to Christ. Because, I mean, a lot of times we don't talk about these things. It's sort of like left for us to figure out. So I want to kind of make it kind of clear. 
talk about these basic things. And I think it should be very helpful for people who are seeking the things of God. You know, if you're going to decide to follow Christ, I think you have a right to know what that looks like. You're going to buy a vehicle or you're going to buy a house. You're going to get an inspection. You're going to do a test drive. You're going to figure out if this is any good or not. And then you're going to make your decision. And if you're a seeker and you want to, you know, find out, should I give my life to Christ or not? Um, is it a good promise? How difficult is it going to be? You know, like what amount of time is this going to take? You know, like you got to count the costs and, and try to see if this is something that you are willing and able to do. So I think for a seeker, this series is going to be very helpful. At least I hope so. Matthew 13, talking about the word, talking about the message of the kingdom. What is the word or the message of the kingdom? Number one, the creator God is real, actually real. Turns out that uh, the creator of the universe is not mythology, but there is an actual creator of the universe, you know, creator, God, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you know, God, the father, Jesus, the son of God, the Holy Spirit, God, the creator is real. That's important. And you are part of God's creation. You're not just an accidental afterthought, you know, randomly here with no real purpose. You're part of God's plan. You are part of the creator's creation. That's who you are. And so that's step one, understanding that. Now, this kingdom, you know, Jesus is talking about the kingdom, the message about the kingdom. What kingdom? So God is wanting to establish, to create. Our creator God is wanting to create an eternal kingdom that obviously doesn't end, that has no bad things in it. No sin, no death, no pain, no sickness, none of that stuff. It's perfect. God is trying to create a perfect eternal kingdom that is populated by intelligent, creative, free-willed beings. And that's what he's trying to do. Now, there's a serious problem that comes with that because creative, intelligent, free-willed beings tend to create problems that ruin the plan. You know what I mean? Like cute little baby born into this world grows up a little bit. You know, you don't have to teach three-year-olds to lie. Did you eat the cookie? Mm -mm. You know, cookie's still in their mouth. You don't have to teach them that. They're just looking at their options. How do I get out of this jam? I'll just deny what I just did. You know, they'll lie. So there'll be untruth that comes in. We're just naturally like that. It just comes naturally. And so as these intelligent, creative, free-willed beings come into understanding what they can do, what we have the power to say, how we can, you know, make a difference, we tend to do evil things, you know, like good things too, but evil things. And so this eternal, perfect place can't have anybody who does evil stuff in it or it ruins it. So again, this is the short version. So what ha what's, what's the solution to that? You know, if you've got this perfect eternal kingdom that you want to be populated, filled up with all kinds of intelligent, creative, free-willed beings that are all different from each other, you want to fill it up with them. What about the ones who ruin it for everybody else? Well, you just you know, got to eliminate them. You got to take them away so they don't destroy this eternal kingdom, this perfect eternal kingdom. So anybody who sins has the potential to ruin it. So they have to be eliminated. So the wages of sin is death. Okay, fair enough. But this creates a secondary problem 
which is that you have zero inhabitants of this eternal kingdom because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So this is a problem. If you want to have an eternal perfect kingdom where nobody messes it up, guess what? You and I can't last in an eternal perfect kingdom without at some point messing it up. We have to be eliminated, but so does everybody else. Now there's nobody left put in the eternal kingdom. So obviously that's not going to work. So here is the next solution. The second half of the solution is not just to eliminate, not just to, you know, wages of sin is death, not just to destroy, but then to redeem those who ruin the plan and then teach them how to not ruin the plan. So there is the redemption. Christ died on the cross to pay the price. The wages of sin is death for you and me so that we could be redeemed, not destroyed, but bought back from death so that then we could get another shot and we could be in the state of grace where God forgives us so that we can learn how to function in the ways of God so that we don't ruin God's plan, so that we can stop the destructive patterns in our lives, where we can stop speaking evil and doing all these different things, but instead we can be part of making the world a better place. We can be selfless and we can be encouraging and we can connect with the good things of God and we can be part of his plan. So we've got to learn that. So we've got some time now to learn these things. We've got to learn how to live in the good things of God. So Jesus paid the price. Now we live the new life to learn how to not ruin God's plan. That's the message of the kingdom in a nutshell, as far as I can understand it. And in short, it's John 3, 16. You know, I'm going to go back to that dialogue with Nicodemus, John chapter 3. This is where we get that very, very famous verse, probably the most famous one in there. It just says so simply, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. This is the, the gospel in a nutshell. So if you're ready, let's go ahead and get started on that new life. If you're not ready, stick around with me on this series and let's, uh, let's explore the things of God. Let's try to grab hold of these things and get an understanding of what the promise really is and what is on the road of this new life. So let's pray and... Uh, just seek the Lord on all these things. So Heavenly Father, for those who are believers in you, I pray, Father, that you would help us to grab hold of that new life so that we can be part of your plan and not ruin it, so that we can not be part of the darkness and part of the enemy's things, but that we would be able to grab hold of your good things and be part of bringing your love, your peace, your joy to this world. And Father, for those who right now they can sense, yep, it's time for me to make my decision to follow Christ. Uh, if that's you, it's a simple, simple thing to start, you know, to be born again. Ask God for forgiveness. Pledge your life to, to follow him. So pray something along these lines. Heavenly Father, I want to be part of your kingdom. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for paying the price that I could be redeemed. I know that I've failed. I've done things that wouldn't work in your eternal perfect kingdom. And so, Lord, I thank you for redeeming me, for buying me back from those errors, from those sins, so that I can be set free from that and have a new life. Now teach me your ways. Help me to learn them and uh, live those out so that I can grab hold of the fullness of your plan for my life and grab hold of everlasting life. And if you pray that prayer, anything along those lines, then you started that new life. And Lord, for those who are seeking, Lord, I pray you'd give them patience. 
you'd give them uh, just uh, an opportunity to look and try to understand and try to grab hold of what these promises are so that they can make a good decision. And so, Father, I pray for patience for them. So, Lord, encourage us all. Help us to see you for who you are in due time and learn to walk in your ways. In Jesus' name, amen.